The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. through sometimes long after you think he should have come through and one of the guys in the connect group said why did Jesus wait so long I said because I think he was trying to deal with things in my heart in the process and uh, praise God if you're visiting with us uh, we're midway through a series called encountering Jesus um, and we've been looking at how different people in the gospels particularly the uh, the book of John encountered Jesus and, and where they were at and how Jesus met them and how Jesus' character and his purpose had a radical effect and a radical impact on their lives. We started this journey looking at Bartimaeus, whose story isn't in the book of John, and we looked at how Jesus encounters a seeker, someone who was desperately looking for something from Jesus. Um, then we looked a few weeks ago, uh, Lewis, as Lewis preached, about Jesus and the skeptic. And we looked at Nathaniel in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and how he was doubtful of who Jesus really was and how Jesus patiently brings him to a place of being challenged to see Jesus for more than how Nathaniel initially understands Jesus. And then a couple of, uh, last week, I know it's really uh, challenged us in, in looking at Jesus' encounter with the suffering. And we looked at Mary and Martha and how Jesus comes along and offers them the ministry of tears and the ministry of truth. Uh, and then this week, I want to kind of look at another encounter actually that Jesus has with two people in, in two different parts of John. And I want to engage with this question of Jesus and sinners. Jesus and sinners. Now, that word sin, sinners, has a lot of cultural baggage. A lot of cultural baggage. And we need to acknowledge that. Because in the mouths of Christians, uh, when it's spoken, for a lot of people, it causes people to recoil, to kind of really get upset about that. And the reason for that is oftentimes in, in the mouths of Christians, it comes across as being judgmental. It comes across as being arrogant. It comes across as being self-righteous. It comes across as being something that we say about the people out there that's different to the people in here. And we want to kind of marginalize and, and put people in these categories that somehow we're not in. And so people react to that. And so I want us to kind of put some of that cultural baggage aside and, and go to the Bible and, and see how God defines what a sinner is and how Jesus interacted with people that were sinners. Because see, if anyone tries to use this word sin or sinner as a weapon like I've described, when we get the biblical understanding that it's far more wide-reaching than we would realize. It, it recoils back on us. It explodes in our face. It, it blows up in our face because right, Romans chapter 3 categorically says that every single person is a sinner. And we all stand condemned under God's judgment. Now, as religious people sometimes and Christians have been in church for, our, for a while, we somehow kind of go, well, that's not really talking about me. And I want us to look at these two people that encountered Jesus and see how Jesus defines what it is to be a sinner. And how Jesus offers hope to sinners, just like you and just like me. Father, we just ask your Holy Spirit to be here in, in, in our time around your word as we engage with this difficult concept of Jesus and sinners. 
pray that you will give us your grace and your love to hear what you are saying to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus and the outcast is the first person we're looking at, and it's found in John chapter 4. And this is a very familiar story to many of us. It's the Samaritan woman. And I want to read you some of the verses in this passage. It's uh, John chapter 4, 7 and following. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. So this is the kind of sinner that we would all identify as being the people out there, the outcasts. And John goes to great lengths to convey how sinful, how much of an outcast this person was. He tells us that she's a Samaritan, and we're told in the text that Jews despised Samaritans, and for good reason in their mind, because Samaritans were half-castes. They were interbreeds. They, uh, the, the race of Samaritans came out of the period of exile when uh, Israel was exiled into Babylon, and they intermarried with the Canaanites, something that God had forbidden in the Old Testament law. And so all the descendants and the children that came from that were the Samaritan race. So the Jews despised them. But even more than that, they were considered as being heretics because what they'd done is they'd taken bits of the Jewish religion, they'd taken a bit of the Canaanite religion, and they'd meshed it together and come up with a different faith, and they'd synchronized, uh, syncretized these two different religious groups. And so to a pious religious Jew, th- there's nothing worse than that. Add to that the fact that she's a woman, and we've talked several times about how in biblical culture, in first century, um, the, the place of women were, was nothing. They had no rights, no, no status, no authority. She was considered nobody. But what's even more significant than that was that even among her own community, the Samaritan community, she was considered an outcast. We see her heading to the well at the middle of the day, something no woman in the normal parts of society would have done. They usually went down early in the morning before it was too hot in the day to get water so that they had water for the rest of the day. The fact that she's going down to the well in the middle of the day meant that she wasn't welcome to go with everybody else. And we've, we learn from the text why. She's had five husbands and the guy she's living with now is not even married to her. And so she's a moral outcast as well. You couldn't paint a more vivid picture of the outsider. 
the sinner in a Jewish mind. And so uh, the question we need to ask ourselves is, well, how does Jesus respond to this sinner? Well, we see he responds with compassion. With compassion. You see, Jesus initiates the conversation. It's clear from the text that this woman is not expecting Jesus to say anything to her. But Jesus asks her for a drink. And we can see that she's shocked and she's surprised that Jesus is even having a conversation with her. And she's saying, you're a Jewish man. Why are you even talking to me? Don't you know that that's like unthinkable? We see Jesus here intentionally reaching over every barrier that can be erected to separate people. Culture, religion, morality, every single barrier. Jesus is reaching over to bring her into a conversation. And we see a gentleness and a compassion and a love in the way Jesus not only initiates the conversation, but continues the conversation. Very, very interesting. I wonder if that is the way we respond to the people that we think desperately need Jesus. Compassion, grace, crossing cultural divides and barriers to connect people to Jesus. Our second contestant this morning is someone that few of us would actually put in the category of being a sinner. And his story is in the previous chapter, chapter 3. And in fact, it's, it's interesting that John portrays these two people side by side in these two panels in chapter 3 and chapter 4 because you couldn't get a, a wider contrast if you tried. Nicodemus is in chapter 3 at the opposite end, if you like, of the moral, cultural, religious spectrum from this woman. And we find his story in chapter 3 and verses 1 to 7 says this, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to the flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, Nicodemus is a religious person, not someone we would immediately think of as a sinner. And he's got impeccable credentials. He's a man to begin with. In this day, that was a huge thing. He's a Jewish man, which for a Jewish person is like he's at the top of the pecking order. But we're told several other things. He, we're told that he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. He's the equivalent of a high court judge, really respected, a civil leader in his community. We're told that he's a Pharisee, which means that he was a devout religious person who's been faithfully living according to the, the, the Old Testament laws of, of cleanliness and holiness and righteousness. And in, in first century Palestine, they would have been considered the heroes. If, if anyone was looking at someone to follow as a faithful disciple, a faithful follower of God, it was the Pharisees. And so Nicodemus is one of them. And he was 
probably loaded. We know that from John 19, 39, at the burial of Jesus, he brings all these spices and a lot of it that only a really rich and powerful person would have had. So this guy has it all together. Again, you, you couldn't describe someone who has it more together than how John describes Nicodemus here. He was squeaky clean. And how does Jesus respond to Nicodemus? Very, very different. I don't know if you picked up the tone of Jesus' difference. Nicodemus hasn't even asked a question. And notice one of the other interesting things that when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. There's no arrogance in this man. He's even humble. He's, he's, he's coming to Jesus who is an untrained young man and calls him rabbi. There's a, there's a willingness to learn and a, and a humility that Nicodemus is showing here too. And so when Jesus responds in verse 3, I tell you no one can enter the, see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. It's like in your face, Nicodemus. It's this almost rebuke. It's this confrontation, not compassion that we detect. And that's why Nicodemus recoils. He's like, how can someone be born when they're old? What Jesus is saying is so radical, and sometimes we miss it. What Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, you are no different to the pimps and prostitutes and tax collectors out there. You're not going to see the kingdom of God either. Like, what? That's why Nicodemus is going, what? How confronting and shocking that would have been to someone who, who is so committed to keeping God's laws and was convinced of their religious piety, of the fact that they'd been faithfully keeping God's word. And now this rabbi is telling him, you're no different. You stand equally condemned. You too are a sinner. Unless you can be born again. So before we move on to, to consider what does Jesus offer to sinners, the outcast and the insider? What does Jesus have to offer to each of them? We need to wrestle with this idea of what, what, what are we talking about? What is sin? What does it mean to be a sinner? Because we're familiar with the moral part of it. We're familiar with the people who do bad things, the prostitutes, the drug addicts, the gangbangers, the tax collectors, you know, whatever it is we formulate, child molesters. We're kind of going, yeah, they're the really, really bad people. They're the sinners out there. But we're not so willing, perhaps, to accept the Nicodemus kind of sinners. So what are we talking about? What is Jesus talking about? A definition for sin. Uh, Keller was really helpful with this. He says something like this. And he says, sin is looking to something else besides God for your salvation. Really simple definition. See, often if I was to ask someone that question, what do you think sin is? They will list behaviors. And maybe you've done that. I know I've done that. But if you list behaviors, then Nicodemus gets a free pass. But Jesus won't let him have a free pass. What's going on there? Well, both the Samaritan woman and Nicodemus are trusting in something else besides God for their salvation. It, it's very different things, but they're still trusting in something else. See, for the Samaritan woman, she's, if you were to ask this question, what is really going to make you happy? How would the Samaritan woman answer? Probably sex and relationships. 
See, and we do that all the time, don't we? If I was to ask you, what would really make you happy? How many of you would immediately say, Jesus? And sometimes those things that we pursue, that that's something else, can become so central in our heart that we look to that thing, whatever it is, and it could be good things. It can be career, education, family, ministry. It could be a whole bunch of things that take the central place. And somehow we look to that thing to meet the deepest needs of our heart. The moment we do that, it's sin because something else has taken the place of God. It's really disobeying the first commandment. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. And those gods can come in the form of sex, money, power, fame. It comes in lots of different ways. And again, I think we're more familiar with that kind of sinfulness. So what's, what's Nicodemus's problem? What's he got in the center? Himself. Himself. You see, because Nicodemus is trusting in himself, in his righteousness, in his good works, in his moral behavior, in his prestige, in his reputation, in the respect he has in the community. He's trusting in all of the things that he's been doing to be his salvation. And we all do that. We all do that. Somehow we think that if I do enough good, then God owes me. We, we come to the table to negotiate with God and, and list our credentials and go, God, look at all the things I've been doing. Look at how I've been living my life. Look at the fact that I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. I'm not like the people out there. So God, you need to forgive me. You need to accept me. You need to give me eternal life because of all the things that I've been doing. That's what Nicodemus' problem was. And again, it shows up in a very different way, but he's not trusting God for his salvation. He's trusting himself for his salvation. And so Jesus says, you want to enter the kingdom of God that way, that way. So what does Jesus offer to sinners, to sinners in either category, to those who have so pursued things in their life that they're driven by those things and they're looking to those things, whether it's sex, money, career, family, education, power, whatever it is, to be their gods, to save them, to satisfy the deepest inner longings of their heart. What does Jesus have to say to that person like the Samaritan woman? He says, I offer you living water. He says, I offer you living water. And Jesus is doing two things with this metaphor. One is he's trying to show this Samaritan woman that just like water is essential for your physical survival, something that I think in our Western culture we don't fully appreciate because we open the tap and there it comes. Unless it's this week when I, there was a you know, problem on the street and we lost water and I got a call from my daughter Ebony saying, there's no water in the house. What's going on? It's just, there's no, I'm turning the tap and there's nothing coming out. We don't experience those things very often. But in this part of the world, this woman knew that if she didn't go to the well that day and if she didn't have water and something was to contaminate that well, the whole village, their life was depending on that. So it was a matter of survival. And Jesus is using this metaphor to say just like that, just like you need water to survive physically, there's a deeper thirst in your heart that if you don't find satisfaction in, will destroy you, will kill you. 
And Jesus does this thing about saying, you know, we can, you can look to things on the outside, just like physical water. And that's why this woman's kind of struggling and saying, how are you going to get this water? And Jesus is like, it's not about things outside of you. You see, because when you pursue those things, just like this woman was with five relationships, six now, at some point, you'll get to the point where it will fail you. Our culture is littered with examples of people who pursued a dream. And they got it. Finally, they got it. And when they got there, it just vanished. And it didn't deliver the fulfillment and the inner longing that they were so convinced it would. And they take their life. Or they are shattered and they're broken. It will fail you. One way or the other. Either... If you achieve that dream, achieve that goal, achieve that thing in your mind that you said, if I just get this, I will be happy. When you get there, you'll find that it won't make you happy. Because in your heart is the longing for something more than something from the outside. It can't meet that need. It never can meet that need. And it'll disappoint you that way. Or it will enslave you as you pursue the lie that says, well, maybe I just need to get a little bit more of whatever that thing is. Maybe the next promotion or the next big house or the next relationship or the next something. Maybe I just need to keep going to that next thing. And it will enslave you as you pursue it and pursue it and pursue it. Just like chasing a mirage. David Foster Wallace, an American novelist, well known, he said this. Everybody worships. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. I think Bob Dylan said something similar. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God, listen to this, to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. It will destroy you. And he's not a religious person. And he's not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination. But he recognizes this truth that's in the heart of humanity. The best way for me to illustrate this is with this picture that hopefully will stay with you. It is like being in in an ocean as a castaway. Where day upon day upon day you are so desperate for water. And you're surrounded, if you can put that image up please. And you're surrounded by an ocean. There's water all around you. And in desperation you start drinking it. The real danger of this idle, if you like, or this pursuit is that you can convince yourself that you're meeting your need while it's killing you all the time you drink it. It's deadly because it gives you the illusion, I'm drinking and my belly is getting full, but at the same time, it's killing you from the inside. And Jesus, the second thing he does with this metaphor, he says to this Samaritan woman, but what I have to offer you is different. Because I'm offering you myself. And what is different about that is that you will find the satisfaction of your soul only in me. And it will be from the inside out. It won't be from the outside in. There'll be nothing on the outside that will ever satisfy you. But I alone can satisfy you from the inside. And so I offer you living water. And he says this to her. Everyone who drinks this water, they'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then a few chapters later, in John 7, Jesus said this, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. That's what Jesus offers to those who are desperately thirsty. Find satisfaction in me. What does Jesus offer to the religious, to the insider, to Nicodemus? He says this crazy statement, be born again. Now again, that's a, a label that's you know, got cultural baggage associated with it in our Christian context. Again, we think of born again as being for those people out there who have a bad history, who've got a bad life, and they need a new start, a fresh beginning. They're the ones that need to be born again. It's com- kind of like this spiritual relocation program. You know what I'm talking about? The witness protection programs. That's, that's what born again is. You know, there's, they're, te- you know, they're prostitutes or they've been in jail, and they need to get born again so that they can have a new beginning. But Jesus addresses this to a religious, pious, altogether guy. You need to be born again. What's Jesus on about? You see, the idea of born again strikes at the very heart of self-reliance. See, because Nicodemus is like, how can, how can I be born again? Jesus is like, well, that's the point. You can't. Just like your physical birth, there's nothing you can actually do about it. There's nothing that you can contribute to it. There's nothing that you can bring to the table. It is something that you're completely dependent on someone else to do for you. Which is why Jesus goes on to talk about the blowing of the wind of the Spirit and goes on to talk in John 3 about God so loved the world that all who believe, believe. It's a gift that you must receive. It's not something you can bring in your hand. It's coming before God empty-handed and saying, God, I need you. To give me second birth. I need you to breathe into me by your spirit and bring me alive. Nothing I do will achieve that. I am totally helpless, totally out of control with regards to a second birth. I bring nothing. That's the point. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you're just as lost. You will miss out on the kingdom just like that tax collector and prostitute out there because you don't get this. You can't save yourself. Only I can do that for you. And unless you're willing to humble yourself and acknowledge your desperate need for God's grace and his forgiveness offered through Jesus, you will miss out just like they will. The, the best illustration I could think of was this image, quicksand. And I did some research and they say that, you know, quicksand, when people fall in, the, the, the immediate reaction is to kind of struggle and, you know, thrash around and try and save themselves. And the more you do that, the worse you make it. It's almost like you have to surrender to the quicksand and try and bring your legs up and try and float your way to the surface or have someone on the outside bail you out. That's what Jesus is offering Nicodemus. He's saying, Nicodemus, it's like being born again. You're completely helpless, completely powerless, completely out of your control. There is nothing you bring to that. It's a gift, and I want to give it to you. But if you are still in that place of saying, look at all the things that I'm doing to bring something to that conversation, to that table of negotiation, you'll miss out on the kingdom of God. So where are you at? Well, let me help you by sharing where I'm at. I've been in both camps, and sometimes I'm still in both camps. You see, I've been through seasons in my life where I've looked to other things to be in that central place, 
to be my salvation because of my own brokenness, my insecurities. And let me tell you, as a pastor and a Christian, I'm not exempt. Ministry can become that thing so easily, so easily. I've been there. And then I've been up Nicodemus's end where I've kind of gone, look at me, God, look at how good I am. You know, I'm a pastor with a brand new Bible and look, it's bigger than my older one. I'm reading it and, you know, aren't I good? And, you know, look at all the stuff I'm bringing to you. So God, you know, give me a break. Kind of go, yeah, you're a good person. Give me a free pass. I've been in both ends of that spectrum. Where, where do you stand? Because what Jesus is saying here is that both of those people and everyone in between stands on a level playing field when it comes to sin. And we all stand in need of God's grace and forgiveness and mercy and compassion. And God calls all of us to the same response of repenting, which is turning away from living that way, trusting in anything else to save us, to repent of that, to turn away from that. God, God, I I renounce those other gods. I, I renounce myself and trusting in all these other things. I turn away from that and I turn to you. And to come to God with open hands and saying, God, I want to receive your gift of salvation through your son Jesus? Will you accept me for his sake? Will you accept me because of what he's done for me? Will you accept me because Jesus died on the cross in my stead? You see, this Samaritan woman, Jeff, you can jump up. She experienced salvation that day because Jesus was thirsty and he sat by the side of a well. And Jesus was thirsty because the son of almighty God became human. He left the glory of heaven and he incarnated himself in our earthly tent and he was thirsty that day. But that woman also received salvation because there was another time that Jesus was thirsty and it was on the cross when he said, I am thirsty. And when Jesus was talking there, yes, it was physical, but it was much more than that because Jesus, because of our sin, your sin and my sin, was separated from God, the Father, who is the source of living water. And his cry of anguish and agony was the full experience of being cut off from the source of living water himself for you and for me. And the reason why Jesus can offer us a second birth is because he died and his death and his resurrection is the gift of life that he can give to us. You see, living water can only be received through being born again. And that born againness, the new birth, the second birth can only happen as, a, as you receive the gift of what Jesus did for you on the cross. And I want to ask you, not how long have you been in this church, not how long have you been a Christian. You can list your credentials to me like Nicodemus. That's not what I'm asking for. I'm asking, who are you trusting in to save you? Who are you trusting in to save you? And if you're trusting even a little bit in yourself, then I want to encourage you. Look at what Jesus says to Nicodemus. You need to be born again. Or maybe you're here in the other extreme and you've been pursuing all kinds of things to try and meet the soul thirst in your deepest part. And you're hoping that one day, if you just get enough, that it will be your salvation. Jesus offers you living water. So the only question I have for you is what will you do with what Jesus is offering you? Will you accept it? Will you receive it as a gift? Will you come today and say, God, I'm done trying to save myself. 
I'm done looking to all these other things to try and be my Savior. God, I come to you desperate, recognizing I'm a sinner that needs your forgiveness, that wants you to accept me and give me living water that will satisfy the deepest longing of my heart as I trust in Jesus. Are you willing to do that? Are you prepared to do that? Well, at the conclusion of this service, which is right now, we'll be praying for people at the end of this service. And I encourage you, I invite you, I challenge you. Don't stay in your seat. Come to the front. Let us pray with you. Let us talk with you. Let us lead you to the source of living water that you too may be born again and experience God's love and grace and forgiveness this morning. Why don't you just bow your head and close your eyes. Take a moment.